The word First Peter, audience is very similar, believers in crisis. And how shall we live when we're in crisis? And that's what we're answering in the book of First Peter. What should we do to a watching world? Is this stuff real? Is Jesus real? Does our hope really mean something? Uh, do our lives really uh, stand for Christ when the going gets tough, when there are trials and difficulties? Does our faith hold? Uh, do we keep on in the midst of all of these things? And Peter is seeking to encourage these saints who are scattered and persecuted in First Peter uh, in the region of Turkey, we talked about that in the opening verses, in that region, Turkey, and uh, Asia Minor, part of the world. Let me read the verses we're going to consider this morning. Verse 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There are two imperatives in this passage. There are three participles. Two imperatives. The first is, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the second imperative or command is, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Two exhortations, fix your hope and be holy. And that is where we're going to talk about this morning. Everything else around those verses points to those imperatives. I want to talk first this morning about the second one, the one where he says to be holy. Because I think the first one, to fix your hope, sort of is encompassed by that second one as well. The number one thing that God wants you to know about him, and the number one thing he wants me to know about him is that he is holy. Holy, 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 the angel said. Just emphasis on his holiness. God is holy, and it's something he wants you to know. It is the jewel of the crown. If you think of the crown being holiness, all the other attributes are sort of jewels around that, but that's the crown center. He is a holy God. He is holy in everything he does. And this is an attribute that you keep bumping into as you read the scripture. R.C. Sproul said when he was doing his series on the holiness of God, he says it's just everywhere. God wants you to know he is a holy God. The meaning of holiness is this. It means to cut or to separate. Separate, In other words, to be set apart from something or someone. God is set apart. He is set apart from us. He is set apart from his creation. He's not in his creation. He's over his creation. He is set apart from everything. And he's incomparable. He is without equal. There is no other one like God. There is no one like the Holy One, like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, Samuel says. And so there's a profound difference between God and his creation, a profound difference between God and us. He is other. He is other. He is unapproachable. If you read in the Old Testament, he's just unapproachable. They just always were figuring out how you get to God. 
And God prescribed a way, and if you didn't do it the way he said to do it, then it just, you, you would die. It, it, the message of the Old Testament seems that many times to be stay away. Don't get too close. You will die. Because God is holy, and he can have no sin in his presence. And that's pretty much what characterizes me and you. We are sinners. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, Habakkuk says, and you cannot look on wickedness with, a fav- with, excuse me, with favor. There is nothing evil about God. He is too pure to look at. He doesn't do anything evil. He always does what is right. He can never do anything that is wrong. He is in- untouched by, unstained by sin. He cannot be tempted to sin, and he tempts no one to sin. So the natural question is, how can sinful, unholy people like us ever be holy like God, as he says in this verse? You see that? That's the command. That is the command. Be holy as I am holy. How in the world can that happen? We can take heart in the words of A.W. Pink where he says this, Blessed be his name, that which his holiness demands, his grace has provided in Jesus Christ. His holiness demands something of us. His grace provides the answer to that. So you being holy is not about you, it's about Jesus, because you can never do it. You can never make yourself holy enough to go into the presence of a holy God. And so let me explain it to you in two ways. When the Bible talks about holiness and talks about it in relation to us, it, mean, it goes like this. First off, it's talking about God clothing us with his holiness. This is at salvation. This is at justification. When you put your faith in Christ, he clothes you in his holiness. He clothes you in his perfect righteousness. And you have to look at the cross to see how much God hates sin. How far God would go to punish sin. To pour out his wrath on his son. To pour out his wrath on the second person of the Trinity. To pour out judgment on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to become sin. And then God poured out wrath and judgment on on Jesus. God hates sin that much. God puts our sin on Jesus and puts his righteousness on us. That is God clothing us in his righteousness. When you by faith trust in Christ at salvation, he clothes you in his righteousness. Now God is approachable to you because when God looks at you, he sees Christ. When God looks at you, he sees the perfection and the holiness of Christ. That is the position of every true believer. He has declared you holy. He has has clothed you in that righteousness that he requires for you to come into his presence. It's not something you do. It's something that he does to you. If you're a Christian, that is your position this morning. You have been clothed in holiness, his holiness. It's the only way this could happen. God had to do something because none of us could ever obtain the holiness required to approach a holy God. He had to do it. 
So if you are of the elect of God, if you are the ones that he has just described in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, if you are the ones who he foreknew before the beginning of the world, if you are the ones who he has sanctified and made part of the body of Christ, if you are the ones that he has done that work in, then you have been declared righteous. You have been clothed in his holiness. That's a positional truth. Every Christian can rest in that truth. If you died right now and you're clothed in his holiness, you would go to heaven. The second aspect of holiness we see in 1 Peter, where he says, be holy. It's an imperative. And so what he's saying now is, you who have been clothed in this holiness, he says, now I want you to be holy in your practice. Live out this holiness. That's sanctification. That's the process of becoming what I am in Christ. You see, I had nothing to do with the first one. God did that work in me. He brought me to salvation. He gave me faith and trust in Him. And He justified me and clothed me in holiness. I did nothing. It's about what he did. But this aspect of holiness is sanctification, and I do have a part in that. That's the reason it can be an imperative to me. That's the reason 1 Peter can say, this is what God wants you to do. Be holy as I am holy. So this is important. Because if there's no sanctification going on, if there's no desire for holiness taking place, If there's no steps toward holiness happening, then you have to ask yourself, was I ever clothed in his holiness in the first place? That's a very important question. This is the process of salvation we're talking about in 1 Peter 1. The process of salvation, which is sanctification. This isn't what saves you. This is what shows you're saved. This isn't what makes you right with God. You're already right with God if you've been clothed in His holiness. This is what demonstrates that He has done something in your life. Sanctification also means to be set apart. Sanctification is the process of of, uh, being conformed to Christ's holiness in my practice and more conformed just to be like Him. I should no longer be wanting to do the things that I used to do. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. It doesn't mean I don't sin. It doesn't mean any of that. It means I have the struggle of Romans 7, just like Paul, the Apostle Paul did. I struggle with this unredeemed flesh. But the point is, the characterization of my life is one in which I desire this holiness. It's not a pull-up pull up your bootstrap sanctification. It's dependency on Christ to do that work in me. It's not me trying to somehow do this all on my own power. Recognizing I've been given the resources in Christ, and we're going to see that. You've been given the resources in Christ and applying those resources to my life. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So our new birth, after giving 12 verses on our new birth, giving 12 verses of indicatives of of who we are and statements about our salvation, 
Paul now says, this is what you do to live it out. Look at verse 13. He says, therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first imperative, before I get to the one on be holy, the first imperative is this one of fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, the word therefore tells you to go back to the previous verses, 1 through 12. It's a transitional word. And he's saying, based on everything I have told you, all those indicatives, and now I come to some imperatives. That's a common way of writing, a common mode of writing in the Bible. Paul uses it. He'll give you 11 chapters in Romans of indicatives of your salvation, about your salvation. But then he gives you the command. Therefore, he'll say, don't be conformed to this world. Therefore, Walk according in, Roman, in Ephesians 4. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling after he gives all those indicatives, all those statements. He then says the imperatives. And that's what you see here in 1 Peter as well. Therefore, uh, therefore he, he says you as believers are to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he surrounds that with these two participles, prepare your minds for action and keep sober in spirit. Those two things, the first two things, those things I just mentioned, that they're the ways that you strengthen hope. The first command, be hopeful. Hopeful, and you think about how sad it is for people who have no hope. You think about how sad it is for people who and many are like this, are hopeless today, have no hope. It's an empty life to have no hope. Life in Christ is the anchor of our soul. To not have Christ is to have no anchor. To not have Christ is in the hope of his return and the hope of his working in and through my life. To have none of that is to be hopeless, is to be without an anchor. We're not talking about wishful thinking here. We're not talking about hoping something happens. We're talking about confident expectation. Fixing your hope. That's the imperative. Fixing your hope. Something you are told to do. Fix it completely. Fix it completely on the grace that's going to be brought to you, he says. He gave you grace. He's going to bring you more grace in the future because we need grace. It will always be about grace. You know, in the times in which we've been living, I think you see the frailty of our hope. You see so many, even Christians, hopeless, talking in hopeless language, expressing hopeless thoughts. I think the, the, the problems that we've seen in our society have caused many to see what their hope was really in. Maybe not in Christ, maybe not in God, but maybe in their health, maybe in their wealth, maybe in their government, maybe in something else besides God. That's exactly what I think has been exposed in many of us. We're commanded to fix our hope completely. Give your life to it. No matter what the cost, whatever comes to you, talk about it and think about it. 
You get in conversations with some people and they sit there and they tell you everything that is wrong, everything that is bad. They tell you all their problems and there's never any words of hope expressed. And you try to say something and they come back with the stubborn what-ifs. What if this happens or, or what if that happens or, or what if, what if? And unless you can answer their question with, well, listen, nothing bad will ever happen to you and nothing bad will ever happen to your family. Unless you can give them that answer, they will not stop the what ifs. Is that not correct? It's what if, what if, what if? All of these imaginary things and speculations that have not happened. And you have to ask yourself, where is the hope? You claim to know Christ. You claim to have verses 1 through 12 part of you. Where is your hope? Do you realize your children are listening to you? Do you realize they're listening to you, mom and dad, who claim to know Jesus and wondering how this stuff flushes out when they hear so much hopelessness? And we wonder why the reality and passion of our faith doesn't get passed on. Because Christianity just means going to church and putting money in that offering box back there. That's all it means. It can't be lived out in a hopeless world. It can't be lived out in a difficult world. That's why it has to make this an imperative. Fix your hope completely. No matter what the cost. The future grace of second coming grace. I've got grace now. I have grace in the future. I will always have grace. It will always be about grace. It will always be me depending on and having to depend on God's grace. And it gives you two ways to strengthen that hope because this is the imperative. Fix your hope completely on the grace that has come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That glorification that we all look forward to. And the way to strengthen that hope, he says this, number in verse 13, prepare your minds for action. You start with the mind. You have this preparation of the mind. In other words, is untangle your thought life. Untangle your thinking. Your thoughts are all twisted. It's the idea of girding up your loins. It's the idea of the language of before they would go into battle, they, would, you know, they wore these tunics and there would be a belt, a rope belt. And what they would do is they would gather up the loose ends of their tunic and tuck them in because you really couldn't do anything with the loose ends of that material hindering your activities. And so you had to gird up your loins. It's the same thing. Prepare your minds for action. Pull in the loose ends. Pull, untangle your thoughts. Discipline your thought life in order to strengthen your hope. This is the problem. This is the problem. The thinking feeds the hopelessness. You see, we used to be a society that really practiced logic. We used to be a society that was cognitive. We used to be a society that, that talked about principles and laid out logical statements and suppositions and things like that. We used to be that kind of a society, but we have increasingly become more of a society that is governed by our feelings. We're sensual. Show me images and make me feel a certain way. And I'll tell you if it sounds truthful to me or not. 
We've lost that truth grid for reasoning. We don't, that's not the grid we interpret anything through anymore. We now interpret it through, when things come at us, we interpret it through how it makes me feel, how it sounds to me. The truthiness of something is determined by how I feel about it. The dark ages, the dark ages, it's amazing. I haven't studied a whole lot, but just taking the dark ages, that, that period of time after the 300s, you had, you had all of these great thinkers of the early church. And then what happens in the dark ages, one writer said that they started to turn to myths and magic. And they didn't think anymore. And they were all victimized by spirits and all kinds of things like that. So when you get rid of the truth grid, you can't evaluate anything. And that's what he's talking about here. You want to evaluate things. You want to be able to engage uh, the culture with right thinking. We just want to bypass the mind, mysticism and those things we've talked about many times, to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine because we don't have a truth grid. He's going to talk later in the next couple of verses about the war with fleshly lust. And, and there's going to be nothing more strenuous and vigorous in, in living a life in obedience to God because sanctification is very hard. Sanctification is not easy. And you need to have discernment and you need to have, be able to evaluate. And you need to run a race that you don't get tangled up in things. Lay aside those things that tangle you up. Wrong thinking, wrong ideas. And I'm not talking just about lustful, pornographic things. That's another problem. I'm talking about just wrong thinking, strongholds of the world's thinking that get into our minds and clouds our thinking and impedes our hope and puts us into the mire of hopelessness because we feed our minds on those kinds of things. This, this fixing your mind, or fixing this command to fix your, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you, this hope is what pulls us forward in sanctification, by the way. The fact that I know he's coming back is something that holds me accountable. It's something that pulls me forward. I don't live in the past, and I, I really, I'm in the present, but I'm really looking forward to something. It affects how I live now when my hope is fixed in, in that direction. Back in Exodus chapter 12, when God instituted the Passover, on the night before he was going to deliver the people from Egypt and to head to the promised land, to head to Canaan, he instructs them how you eat Passover. He says that in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, haste. Get ready to go. It's out of here. Eat and go. We're going to another place. We're going to a new life. This old life is behind you. We're going forward to a new life. You've been redeemed in that context, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb over the doorpost. You're now a pilgrim people. You're going to live according to a new law. You're going to have a new hope, a new life. 
You don't sit back and just relax. You don't just sit back and do nothing. He says, keep sober in spirit. Also in verse 13, uh, usually, originally this word did not have anything to do with getting drunk. It can certainly be used that way today, but it, it really, you put sober in spirit. He's talking metaphorically. He's talking about uh, mental sobriety, mental self-control. That's what he's talking about. Don't be self-indulgent, but be self-controlled. Have the control of your faculties at all times. There's a time when we let our minds get intoxicated with wrong thinking. This kind of plays into some of the things I've just said. We get disoriented. He's talking about having a tempered outlook on things. And I think a tempered outlook on things includes seeing things from a, in a balance. I think it's saying that I want to take the fact that I, have, I know the, so, the, the sovereignty of God and the promises of God, that kind of puts things in a balance. The, that things are bad, but God is sovereign. That's, that puts it in a balance. I want to see the world through the right perspective. I want to see what's going on through God's eyes, not my own. I don't want to lean on my own thinking, my own understanding about things. I want to interpret it through the lens of Scripture. I want to see it the way God sees it. I think that's tempered thinking, sober thinking. That's not denying the pain or the hurt of something, but it's at least putting it in the context, the right context. There is a God who's in control. I think too many times people get into situations and they don't even talk about God. They can't even tell you a Bible verse. Or they'll say something like this. They'll say, they'll, say, um, they'll be looking for human explanations to everything. Not God's word. That's secondary. Well, they, might, they might say something to, oh, well, I know God's in control, but, but, and they just go right back into their human thinking, looking for human answers to things. They can't name a single Bible verse and reference that speaks to the situations that they're in. They don't have that grid. They don't have that grid, the truth grid. So you've got to give weightiness to God and, and His sovereignty and His word and His promises. The word sober, look in verse 7 of chapter 4. It's used there. The end of all things is near. Chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 Peter. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. 5.8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Peter's saying, have an attitude of steadiness and readiness and alertness. If you want to feed hope, if you want to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ, gird up your minds, Untangle your thoughts. Recognize that it starts in your mind. De develop a biblical perspective of things. See things through God's eyes. Have a truth grid that can interpret the events of life. Be thankful. Be thankful. Because you believe God is sovereign and he is in control.
And then he says, exhortation to holiness. And like I said, believing that Jesus is going to come back again is a compelling reason to live a holy life. Uh, if you know the homeowners coming back, Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, isn't it going to affect how you're living? Are you going to be ready for his return? Uh, I like or something that uh, Jonathan Edwards had a resolution. He said, resolve to never do anything that I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolve to, do, to never do anything that I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. And the second coming, knowing he's going to come back, certainly, and we don't know when, it certainly affects how we should live. So he gives this exhortation to holiness, beginning in verse 14. Like I said, the imperative is be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. That's the imperative. And then there's a participle that we're going to look at. But let me start with this, as obedient children. That's a very important statement, as obedient children. Literally, it should say, as children of obedience. It has sort of a strange ring to it, but understand this. Before you became a Christian, you were called children of disobedience. The word of there implies the new nature that you've received, a nature that desires to obey. You were once children whose nature was to be disobedience. That's Ephesians 2. But now you are children with the nature of desiring to be obedient. That's the nature that he's put within all believers. We were given a new nature. We are now of our heavenly father. We're no longer children of the devil. In fact, that's what Ephesians chapter 2 calls us. The prince of the power of the air. You were in bondage to the prince of the power of the air. We've been set free from the prince of the power of the air. We are now children of God. We once had the desires of the prince of the power of the air, Satan. Now we have the desires, been given the desires of God. We are partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter says. It doesn't mean we never sin again, I've said that, but we're members now of God's family and we're to be characterized by obedience to Christ. That is, that is so important to understand, that that is something that God does in us at salvation. He puts that desire, that new nature, partakers of the divine nature, he puts that in us. That's how you know you're saved. You see that change, that desire. Look at 1-2, 1-2, 1 Peter 1-2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ. That's what he's done. Look at 22. Go down to verse 22 of chapter 1. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Obedience to the truth. True salvation results in obedience, it's the natural fruit of being born from above. Listen to this verse. You don't have to turn there because of time, but listen to this verse. 1 John 3.10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So there's a distinction made. Obedience is the key. It's not perfect obedience, but it characterizes the life of a believer. 
This is important, very important. In our day and time, this is so very important. It's not just about showing up. It's not just about putting money in an offering plate. It's about fixing your hope completely. And it's about walking in obedience to Christ. He says in verse 14, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Conformed, only other time this word is used in the New Testament is found in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be entrenched. Do not be entrenched to your former lust and do not be entrenched to the world but be entrenched now to Christ. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't pattern your lives after the world and the thinking of the world and the behavior of the world and the entertainment of the world. Don't be like the world. See, before I came, became to Christ, I had no power to change my entrenchment to my lust. But in Christ, I have the power to do that. Look at 1 Peter 2, 11. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, fleshly desires. Look at 1 Peter 4, 2. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So all he's saying is, don't be conformed to those former lusts that you used to have before you became a believer. We don't walk in darkness anymore. We walk in the light. The word ignorance there is not a moral ignorance. It's the ignorance of the idea that you thought you were on the right path at one time and you're no longer on the right path. Excuse me, excuse me. You thought you were on the right path at one time, but you were duped. You were on the broad path. You were on the path of destruction. It's that kind of ignorance. It's an ignorance of you did not know God. It's an ignorance that you, you did not know what God required. You did not know God and you did not know what God wanted of you. That's the ignorance we're talking about there. It's not that you were going to get off because you were ignorant. It's not that you were going to be excused because of your ignorance. No, you would still face judgment. The, the point is, it's, a, it's an ignorance of not knowing God and not knowing what God required and thinking you're on the right path when you're not really on the wrong path. He says you were duped. But now he says you know better and you do not need, you do not, should not be conformed or entrenched in your former lust. Verse 15 says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Ephesians 1, 4 says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, what we, that we would be holy and blameless before him. This is all over the New Testament. I was not saved just to go to heaven. I was saved to be set apart. You were saved to be set apart, to be holy and blameless. A called out people that would look like God in the way we behave, be like the Holy One. We would look like we, our Father. You know, a child tends to look like his father. A child tends to have the characteristics of his father. We would put God on display. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. You yourselves, somebody else can't do it for you. You have to do it yourself. It's not something that, uh, it, it's, it's not positional holiness. This is, you're con, you want to be conformed to your positional holiness by your practice. 
This is interesting what Jerry Rags said. I tried to write some of this down, but he said this, evangelicalism has lost its quality in evangelism. The pragmatic movement, he says the pragmatic movement which came upon the church, the, the seeker-sensitive movement, where the church tried to attract non-believers, where the church tried to do things that would bring non-believers into the church and, and not offend them. The, the, the movement that said, whatever works, do it. Whatever it takes to get them here. Entertain them. Definitely don't talk about sin. Definitely don't talk about judgment. Definitely don't talk about any of the hard things of the gospel. Change, tone it down so they will, want, they will come and they will feel comfortable. And they came. And the problem with them coming was they brought their sinful cravings with them. And it polluted the church. It polluted the church. Holiness was not part of the gospel message. To be conformed to the image of Christ was not part of the message. We were saved to be holy and blameless was not part of the message. Those things were just pushed to the side completely. The generation that came before the millennials, I don't know, I guess that's me. I'm not sure where I fit into this whole thing. But the point is, there was a generation in the church that was strong on missions and strong on evangelism and strong on the centrality of the word of God. But that sort of got pushed to the side and the children of that generation, the millennials and the Gen X and all of them, they've had a front row seat to seeing the unholiness that has come into the church. They've seen scandals of pastors. They've seen divorce rates in the church shoot up. They've seen all kinds of, of evil practices and fornication and all kinds of things, all the cravings of the world bombarding the church. They have seen that. And what's missing, as I said earlier, they, not, they miss seeing the passion for Christ that their parents have. And we wonder why they reject Jesus. There's no power in that message. It looks just like the world. Tell the new members class when I'm talking, on my, I do the first session of our new members class, and that song, Just As I Am, and we sing it, it was sung at Crusades, it was sung invitation hymns, all those things. It's a great, it's a great song, it has great things in it, but the problem with that song is many people sing that song, Just As I Am, thinking that that means you come to Jesus and stay just as you are. That's what people think. Holiness is not part of a vocabulary. Now when you talk about holiness to this generation, it sounds like legalism. But it's the gospel. It's part of the gospel. That's what he's saving you to. Heaven, yes. Free from judgment, yes. And condemnation, yes. But he's saving you to be a people called out. To, for the world to see Christ on display, as Doug Prater, to see Christ put on display. That's what Peter is going to be talking about a lot through this letter. Your conduct and your behavior matter to a watching world. How will they know about Jesus if they don't see him lived out, especially in a time of crisis and difficulty? And so, the reason he gives for this is found in verse 16 of 1 Peter he says, because it is written. The reason this, for this imperative is rooted in Scripture. The reason for this imperative is not because Peter just made it up. The reason for this imperative is not because Jesus just made it up when he came on the scene in Matthew chapter 7 and said, you shall be perfect as I am perfect. It's not 
It's rooted back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus. That's what he's quoting from, Leviticus. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Paul repeats this in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Quotes also from Leviticus in that. He says, I want you to, in the book of Leviticus, it was all about, if the world does it, I want you to do it this way. I don't want you to do what the world does. I want you to do it this way. I want you to be separate. I want you to be, reflect the, the fact that you belong to me. I don't want you to be like the Canaanites. I don't want you to be like the Egyptians. I want you to be separate and holy. Folks, this is how we're gonna make the impact in the world. I tell you that right now. The world is not looking for more of the world. The world is looking for answers that go beyond this world. And men need to be told they're not right with God. Men need to be told they don't, they're, they're, they're under the judgment of God apart from Christ. They need to be told that they are sinners who are separated from a holy God and they cannot make themselves holy enough to go into God's presence. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. You have to be perfect to go to heaven. How are you going to do that? Only if God does something to you and he makes you holy and clothes you in the holiness of Christ. And then to give evidence that that has happened, you become holy in your practice. I am holy, he says at the end. He's the standard. Your spouse is not the standard. This church is not the standard. I'm not the standard. God is the standard. You can never excuse yourself. Oh, I'm better than that person. No, God is your standard. Jerry Bridges says this in his book, page 38, Pursuit of Holiness. The only safe evidence that we are in Christ is a holy life. That's your only safe evidence. (laughs) If we know nothing of holiness, we may flatter ourselves that we are Christians, but we do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Holy Spirit, holy desires, makes total sense. Everyone then who professes to be a Christian should ask himself, is there evidence of practical holiness in my life? Do I desire and strive after holiness? Do I grieve over my lack of it and earnestly seek to help the help of God to be holy? It is not those who profess to know Christ who will enter in heaven, but those whose lives are holy. Didn't sound like legalism to Jesus or to God commanded it to us. May that be our pursuit. May that be our desire. Let's just don't talk about it. Let's live it, both in where we fix our hope and how we live our lives. That's how you live in the midst of a society that is difficult. That's what Peter is telling them. You start with your identity, who you are in Christ, and this is how you express it, by fixing your hope completely on the grace that has come in the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming, and secondly, to be holy as I am holy. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word and thank you for your truth. God, what a challenging words from your scriptures this morning. Father, you are other, you are outside of us, you are different than us, and, and yet you have made it possible for us to approach you, and you have made it possible for us to even have the grace and the resources needed to 
be children of obedience. Help us do that, God. Help us be a church that is not just complaining and whining and, and unthankful and ungrateful, but may we be people who are hopeful. May we be people who live what we believe, practice what we preach, are passionate about God and passionate about his word and his truth and seek to walk in obedience to him. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.